This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hello, my name is Kay Winnigal, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard on Radio Skid Row. Today's program is about the state of play with electric vehicles in Australia. We'll look into what's happening in the electric car space, as well as electric buses and trucks. Electric vehicles are being built in many countries around the world, and the uptake of EVs is high in most Western countries, with the notable exception of Australia. Electric buses are creating an interest in Australia with suppliers including Carbridge, Gemalang, BYD, Precision Buses, Volgren and Utong providing an increasing number of models and many of them starting to manufacture here. Could electric buses kickstart Australia's EV manufacturing industry? There are over 100,000 registered buses in use across Australia and 80% of them are running on diesel fuel. While diesel vehicles produce slightly less carbon dioxide than traditional petrol, they still produce up to 1.3 kilogram of carbon dioxide per kilometre while in use. Given that an average bus travels around 36,000 kilometres a year, that means buses alone are responsible for a few million tonnes of CO2 every year. So it's certainly a manufacturing industry that could be quite lucrative for Australia and help it reduce its carbon emissions. Firstly, we'll talk to Luke Todd, CEO at True Green Mobility, which is focusing on building electric buses and trucks in Australia, and then Bryce Gayton, EV specialist, who will tell us about the latest in electric cars here. Luke, tell us about True Green Mobility and its focus. Okay, so True Green Mobility is, is a group that's focused on creating clean and sustainable uh, zero emission transportation products. Uh, the genesis of True Green Mobility was a company that I formed several years ago called Nexport, which was focused on the importation and manufacture of zero emission bus products for Australia, uh, predominantly New South Wales in, in the beginning. Over the last few years, uh, we've been able to acquire some businesses and create a much greater depth of business as far as our engineering capability uh, and also the brands within in our product suite. Recently, uh, we had a, an investment group called True Green Impact Group who have come along and they're a clean tech accelerator business where they support early stage companies to facilitate growth, provide capital support services and we've been had a great relationship with True Green Impact um, and now looking to uh, step out and uh, step out on our own with a, a planned listing early on in, in 2022 and, and recently uh, raised a significant amount of capital on our, on our own and um, looking to grow and expand all of our business verticals. Before True Green Mobility, you were part of a company that launched and trialled buses at Sydney Airport for a while. What benefits and savings did you find by replacing diesel buses with electric ones? Great. So I'm glad you asked. Um, the company uh, was a company called Carbridge. I was actually one of the owners and, and CEO of that business for, for close to 13 years. Um, it gave me a great opportunity to introduce new technology. Um, having a large operational business at airports was a really good platform because an airport is, is a great area to trial new products, especially electric. In most of our services, we, we didn't go further than five kilometres from our actual depot. So we, in conjunction with Sydney Airport and some of our customers, we're looking to imp improve our, our carbon footprint and, and the impact that we had on the environment in and around airports. So we had a, a great opportunity to work with Sydney Airport initially and, and uh, build what was at the time and remains a, a very uh, high-performing electric bus, um, which is still in deployment on the Blue Emu car park service at, at Sydney Airport. But in, in summary of that, having that airport experience enabled us to trial products. As a deeper example, we imported a non-ADR compliant vehicle and drove it around on, on the tarmac of Sydney Airport for around eight months doing in real world operational trials. 
Um, and that was something that if we didn't have an airport supporting us and, and having that ability to trial vehicles off a public road, we might not have been able to bring the quality of, of electric buses that we did onto the market so quickly. So it was a great platform to start off with and it enabled us to create the first electric bus products of which now assist um, considerably in, in the new business that we have now in export and inside the Trigger and Mobility Group. I understand the savings were quite substantial on a yearly basis and also the payback period, is that right? Yes, so I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the journey. When, when we first started this back in 2014, it was all about the environment. It was about reducing emissions and and, and carbon footprint was sort of the, the buzz, buzz terminology at the time. We didn't really focus too much on the cost savings um, that we we now know are very apparent in zero emission uh, buses, particularly electric. It's been a, a very pleasant surprise. So when we when we built the first buses and put them into service, we found that we were saving significant amounts of money on obviously diesel versus electric costing, and then other flow-on effects such as reduced mechanical uh, needs on on an electric bus, but also just other ancillary outcomes such as the reduced number of breakdowns that were occurring, diesel buses and electric, if you're, well, any product, if you're running it for sort of 18 plus hours a day, uh, you are going to have the odd breakdown. But what we found is the minute we introduced electric buses, they virtually never broke down apart from the odd human error where somebody might have forgotten to do something. But as, as a product, uh, diesel versus electric, it was sort of 90% or thereabouts reduced uh, number of breakdowns and reduced cost of, of maintenance. But what we, uh, to, to wrap a number around it, it we, we quickly identified that in the operations that we were running in, in the beginning and at the fuel price, we were saving close to $45,000 per annum by running an electric bus versus a diesel bus. So it became very quickly uh, clear to us that running a whole fleet of electric buses was going to save significant amounts of money over, over the years. Uh, and then what we've seen is government now understand that and, and that's one of the, the main drivers behind the mass transition. It's obviously a fantastic, great environmental outcome, but when you have a cost benefit, um, it's it's obviously a, a clear choice to, to go ahead with new technology. Quite apart from the savings that you make with pollution. Exactly, that's the thing. the The environmental savings are, are astounding and 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 just a absolutely great thing that we we and others are going to do um, as we see more electric buses around. And it's not 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 necessarily about the, the the big headline being climate change. It's it's about the impact that we have on local communities. So it's it's the quality of air that you're breathing when you're on the street, sitting at a bus stop, um, sitting in a, at an airport terminal or a bus bus. Into uh, bus junction, um, it's it's about cleaning the air that that we live and breathe on a day to day basis. And, and if we happen to make a small contribution to to a much wider challenge, uh, being climate change, that, that's also a positive outcome as well. So then you started your company, electric bus company Nexport, which is now the leading supplier of electric buses, and you cite an eighty seven percent market penetration. Can you elaborate on that figure and tell us the configuration of the buses? Sure. So the configuration of the buses that we build um, for New South Wales government or the ones that we've delivered into the Queensland government, um, they're either a 12.5 metre long bus or, or a 12.15 metre long bus. That's pretty typical with what you see uh, running around the street. So, so roughly the same same size um, configuration, uh, virtually the same capacity as a, as a normal diesel bus uh, in the electric. We are consistently bringing down the weight of the vehicle, which will enable us to carry more passengers over time. But as far as a, a like for like, uh, one of the key benefits is that you can switch out a diesel bus and, and put in uh, an electric bus as a straight replacement. So in some of the early days and early conversations that I was having with government, there was a worry that you might have had to have two electric buses for one diesel, but that's, that's, that, that myth has quickly been uh, dispelled. And then as far as market market share that you've spoken about, we because of the early work we did, myself and, and the team, we have had the ability to trial product, introduce product, and, and actually have demonstrated uh, performance outcomes. To, to explain on that a little bit more, we've chalked up more than 5.5 million kilometres with the electric buses that we have 
had in operation since 2015. So that sort of data enables us to demonstrate to our customers and operators that uh, the, the savings and the benefits in real world uh, activity here in Australia. So that that has enabled us to position our, our vehicles in uh, well ahead of our, our competition um, and um, and also the, the high quality of, it, of our vehicle has, has positioned that vehicle as the, the vehicle of choice uh, for companies wishing to transition across to electric buses. So at the moment, they're buses that are imported? The core of our business and, and our philosophy is all around um, what we call intelligent production. So that's buying the best technology where we need to, um, and in this case, the best lithium-ion batteries and the battery management software, et cetera, that makes up an electric bus is all coming out of China um, at, at the moment. There are some some other products in Europe and, and, and the Americas, but unfortunately it's not at the same quality standard or, or safety level uh, that we can uh, we can obtain from China. And then our view is that whatever we can build locally, we will build, build locally. So at the moment, we have two factories here in, in Australia. We have one in Glendenning, New South Wales, and one in Ballarat, Victoria. In the case of Ballarat in Victoria, um, we build up to 40% of the complete bus in Ballarat. Uh, in New South Wales, it's around uh, 20% of the bus is being built in uh, New South Wales and the balance being overseas. But our roadmap sees us bringing much more of that production locally. So we've now been able to identify a whole range of, of parts of that build process that we can do locally. And within the next 18 months, we're looking to have around 70 to 80% of the complete construction of the bus done locally, whether that be in New South Wales or our other facility in, in Victoria. That's fantastic. And how many people would you be employing? So at the moment within our group, we have just under 50 uh, employees all up. Um, as we grow and expand and depending on the demand and, and how quickly electric buses uh, are being accepted by, by governments, we have the potential of, of employing probably upwards of four to 450 staff across the operational sites. Um, it's uh, probably not going to get higher, higher than that because there's only a certain amount of number of buses that need to get replaced across the country annually. Um, but that's still a significant figure and um, a great boost, we believe, to certain local areas where, where we can create a new uh, clean tech industry, um, building electric vehicles, plus also in and around R&D and, and, and um, setting up facilities where we can design and engineer uh, buses for the future as well. Currently, uh, I'm not sh- quite sure, but I think buses, diesel buses, have a life of about seven years. And I would imagine that electric buses would have at least twice that expectancy. Is that right? Um, a little bit of a difference. So you know, currently in New South Wales, Victoria or, or Queensland, um, the expected life experience of, uh, that we have to commit to contractually and, and what you see is around 20 to 25 years for, for a diesel bus. So we've had to build electric buses to actually meet the same same outcome. Um, the reference of seven years, um, we may have got that from, in, in China, predominantly electric buses are built to an eight-year life cycle, which fits in with the um, political renewal cycle of, 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 of buses for, for um, the way things are structured in China. So um, at the moment, electric buses uh, that come straight up off the, sh- off the shelf in, in places like China are, are generally designed for an eight-year life cycle where we've had to go much deeper into the engineering and build a much much more robust product which enables us to um, undertake the guarantee that we need to for, for governments here where we guarantee at least a 20-year operational, if not 25-year operational life for the bus. Um, potentially mid-life there will be a battery replacement because uh, there is partial battery degradation uh, as the buses are, are used uh, throughout their, their tenure. Uh, but as far as the bus itself, uh, the ones that we're putting on the road today will still most likely be running in, in 25 years, uh, albeit they, were, they would have no doubt had a battery upgrade somewhere in the middle. Uh, Australia at the moment is home to the largest lithium reserve, or at least one of the largest lithium reserves in the world. And we recently became the top producer and exporter of the raw material. Do you see a a possibility of Australia manufacturing its own batteries? 
Unfortunately, I, I would love to say yes, but I've been entrenched in this industry now for, for quite a few years and, and spent a lot of time in and around uh, high production battery manufacturing facilities um, in China and, and uh, some other parts of the world. Unfortunately, the cost of establishing a high production cutting edge battery facility, we're, we're talking quite a few, um, quite, a, quite a few billion dollars, let's say two to two and a half billion dollars to set up a, a high production facility. And because battery technology is moving at quite a pace, generally these investments, uh, which are very large amounts of money, only have a shelf life of, of sometimes four to five, maybe six or seven years, and then new technologies is taking hold. So unfortunately, all of the numbers that we've looked at and and what and probably the reason that you don't see a, a high high production facility here in Australia is that the the investment needed versus the ability to keep up with the uh, volume and and then also remain relevant unfortunately just doesn't stack up so as much as it's a very passionate subject it's one I'm very passionate about but when you look into the numbers and see how technology is evolving in this battery space it just doesn't unless it was backed by the government and it was invested as as a, as a job creation project it just doesn't stack up from an economics stand standpoint to actually invest in a battery technology because what you're investing in today will be obsolete in as i mentioned three four five years and there'll be a new technology which will require will require another major investment to uh, to to keep up so i'd love to say the answer is yes but from what i've seen it, it's a we we are a, a still a small country and roughly 25 million uh, population versus um, you know, countries that have a, a, a much higher population much higher usage of, of electric batteries than what we currently do so unfortunately in the near, near future I, I don't see that being a viable option you mentioned before about the adrs the australian design regulations and they stipulate that replacement buses must be of the euro 5 standard with the introduction of the Euro 6 standards tip for 2027. How would that affect you? Uh, well, this is a bit of a, a Kodak moment with um, Euro 5 and Euro 6. So a lot of the major European manufacturers have invested significantly in Euro 6 technology and the roadmap for transition from Euro 4, Euro 5 and then into, into Euro 6 has been in chain for in frame, sorry, for some, some time. Um, the likelihood of any Euro 6s um, on mass being deployed in Australia uh, is, is virtually zero. Um, Euro 5 is, is accepted at the moment, but the, um, the introduction of zero emission buses electric and for the reasons that I mentioned, the cost savings, the improvement uh, to, uh, that it can have with, it, with the air quality and, and the reduced emissions, the likelihood of Euro 6 taking hold in, in Australia is, is very unlikely. Um, unfortunately, with diesel motors, the, they have to become very complex to reduce the, the emissions um, and they still don't get to anywhere near what a zero emission electric bus can, can generate. So Euro 6 is, is sort of the, the final chapter of the internal combustion engine uh, in mine and many many others' views around the world as far as um, where the bus technology will be heading. So 2027, I, I don't think you'll see any Euro 6 uh, being procured at all. Um, we'll be on to version 2, version 3, potentially even version 4 of electric buses by then. In a um, recent AEVA discussion, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association, you mentioned in the EV space that a tsunami is coming far quicker than our federal government realises. Yes. What do you base that on? Uh, I base that on the fact that virtually all major car manufacturers around the world have transitioned or have put in place a transition to moving to electric vehicles or in some cases hydrogen vehicles. Um, there's also been a major transition globally to um, accelerate EV take-up and Australia's lagging behind. If you just look at the, the, the numbers we're, in, in Australia, as far as passenger EVs, we're sub 1% of, of sales are electric vehicles. 
when you look at a global chart um, and you look at probably the most comparable company, country to us maybe being the UK, they're at close to 11%. And then when you look at somewhere like Norway that's leading the way, they're up over 70%. The fact that we're at sub 1% um, and the whole global market trend is moving towards production of electric or uh, in some cases hydrogen passenger vehicles and most major uh, car manufacturers are ceasing the production of petrol or diesel cars. The combination of the fact that Australia has been extremely slow to move and the fact that we have a long way to catch up as far as percentage of sales, uh, that creates a tsunami outcome where you're going to see more and more electric vehicles available for sale and the uptake between sub 1% to somewhere more akin to the UK, which is around the 11% mark, is going to happen very, very quickly. Whereas I think at the moment, we, we haven't seen the full impact of, of that as yet. And uh, fortunately, I've had the ability to, to see it happen in other parts of the world and been very close to the development outcomes that are actually going to see that happen here. Yes, I wouldn't be buying a new petrol car in the next few years. Exactly. That's one of the things that people don't realise as well. Um, the appreciation level of a, of a petrol or diesel vehicle at the moment, as more and more zero emission products come onto market, the electric car that you may buy, sorry, the, the petrol car that, that you may buy now is going to have a very different depreciation ratio to what it has in the past. So if we just look at leasing, for example, where they may depreciate a vehicle over six, six or seven years, um, and, and the whole finance structure is around that, that vehicle having a residual value at certain points during that, that leasing term. Because electric vehicles are going to take hold uh, more quickly than, than people realise, the value of a petrol car or a diesel car that you're buying today is going to worth, be worth significantly less more quickly than what it would have been in the past. And that's something that is actually one of the challenges of EV rollout because there's um, a bit of pushback from dealers and, and, and people with, with an interest in seeing petrol and, and diesel cars sold at the moment because the, the reality is they're not going to be worth the same uh, historically uh, as, as what, what we've seen in the past. Yes, it's certainly an interesting space, isn't it? Especially given the dealership structure that is falling apart with, with the um, revolution of the Tesla model. The disruptive uh, uh, technology there. Exactly. And just hearing on the news again this morning and, and um, the, the uh, Honda is switching to, a, to an online dealership platform as well. So the, the dealership model is certainly uh, well and truly uh, on the way out. Um, unfortunately, the, the way the dealership models are structured in Australia, it, it's very heavily based on, on post-sale activity and, and that making up um, the, the, the profit margin for, for a sale but in the case of EVs because there isn't much post-sale activity as far as revenue opportunities uh, the whole dealership model becomes very difficult under its current framework so so Tesla congratulations to them on, on setting a, a very bold statement quite a few years ago to to go an online sales platform uh, because what they've really done is is foresee the future and and um, uh, you're seeing many more companies, uh, including ours, setting up direct-to-customer models only online, which which has a whole range of, of benefits because you're cutting out a whole range of, of layers of, of people in the middle taking a profit on that vehicle between when it's built and when the keys are handed over. Another exciting part of your business is the the light commercial business, Vans. Yes. Tell us about your plans there. Yeah, so, so vans and, and uh, light commercials for us, albeit maybe not the most uh, attractive vehicles when, when, when you get to, to look, look at electric cars and, and so on, um, but the size of the market for light commercial vehicles is, is very large in Australia. So it's close to 3.4 million vehicles that are in the uh, category of 4.5 tonne or under. Now, when you compare that to... Buses, for example, there's close to 24,000 buses operating government services. So when you're looking at a, a market size of even 24,000 buses versus 3.4 million vehicles, the ability for us to not only have an increased volume of sales, but the ability to do, um, do good as far as replacing a lot of uh, polluting vehicles with zero emission vehicles is, is extremely exciting. So, so we've released two products 
uh, onto the market. Um, one is for sale now, um, being the BYD T3, which is a, um, a compact delivery van uh, with a payload of around 850 kilograms. Um, it's a it's an, a space that's extremely exciting and one where I think you'll see a significant uptake of, of electric vehicles soon enough doing your um, home delivery uh, to, to your door in, with electric vehicles as opposed to uh, petrol or diesel. And another benefit there being is that because vehicles are, are completely, electric vehicles are completely silent, uh, you, your delivery timings can be done at different different times of the day where currently there's some restrictions around noise going into certain suburbs. So so we, we're very confident in the products that we have. We've been very strategic with the timing to introduce the products and we, we didn't rush into the market because there's a whole range of considerations that you have to look at when you're working with customers um, who have um, very big logistics operations structured around their vehicles. Um, so we've, we've been sort of developing our products for close to two, two and a half years and uh, now excitingly are, are ready to, um, to move forward with our product launches and, and have a whole range of interest from some, some very large and small companies and uh, looking forward to seeing more electric light commercial vehicles on our streets very shortly. So the BYD van that you talked about is imported from China and the van or the truck that looks like a van is being built in Australia. Yes, so we have two, two um, main products in our light commercial vehicle space. So one, one is a, a produced vehicle from China that we import and sell directly uh, via our platform evdirect.com.au. And then the second one is a wonderful um, sovereign manufacturing opportunity where we've designed and created our own logistics truck, which is a 4.5 tonne truck with a payload of around 2.2 tonnes. And this product will actually be um, a local, locally produced vehicle. So we've done the majority of the design work uh, both here in Australia and overseas. We've had to do all, all of the prototype and testing work overseas, but it's now at a stage that we're bringing that full manufacturing uh, process to Australia. Sorry, just to clarify, full, there are still things that we can't buy locally, such as the batteries and, and in-hub motors. Um, but as far as the, the body, the, the componentry, such as seats, flooring, et cetera, all of that will be purchased locally or manufactured locally. So we, we're very excited that we're bringing a, a major clean tech manufacturing opportunity to, to New South Wales. And how many jobs is that going to attract? So depending on the take-up of this, and, and this is a little bit harder to predict, but we, we believe this has a, a significant opportunity to create uh, at least a 1,000 jobs, if not more. Um, and this, back to your earlier comment about export opportunities, this is something that we will be exporting uh, to other parts of the world. So depending on how success, successful we are, of which we're, we're quietly confident in, in the product, um, we believe this is going to create a significant amount of jobs um, and have a great export opportunity. We, we aim to be building this product um, in Australia at by no later than Q1 next year. Wow, that's very soon. And I can imagine that there'd be so many companies that'd be looking at getting electric vans, companies like Auspost or Aldi or Ikea or all the companies that need suppliers to ship their products around. Correct, yes. So the e-commerce um, home delivery uh, sector has, has grown threefold, I think, in the last 18 months. So it was already a big sector, but but with the um, unfortunate scenario with, with uh, COVID and plus the just the general increase of, of online shopping um, attractiveness, that, that whole sector has grown significantly. So there's, there's quite a few uh, large and small companies that we're talking to and plenty of interest. Um, as I mentioned earlier, though, e each of these businesses uh, are slightly different. E everyone has a, a different delivery profile, um, different products. You mentioned IKEA. They have a, a very unique scenario where they have a lot of extremely well-designed packaged uh, solutions that are, are quite quite heavy in some cases, though. So when you load up a full full truck or van full of IKEA products, you end up with a very heavy heavy truck. Uh, which has some some implications that we've had to had, had to ensure we manufacture the vehicle to accommodate versus somebody somebody like a, a Woolworths that's delivering groceries which which are much lighter and um, and and not packed as tightly as what what a flat pack 
um, piece of furniture is. So each company, we have to spend time with them, understanding what they need and, and um, effectively uh, tailor um, the internal layout of the vehicle to suit um, in, in that sector. Wow. So you have to customise them according to the suppliers. That's impressive. And yeah, and it'd be expensive too, I'd imagine. Well, the, the cost isn't so difficult, and but it's one of the benefits that we bring. So especially building this product locally, and, and it's not like there's a thousand different types of, of, of layouts. So, so we're only talking sort of five to six different different layouts. But uh, the key ones are, are things like for, for grocery deliveries, you, you need to accommodate a refrigerated uh, section for for that for that uh, particular vehicle because you need to keep foods to a certain temperature and each each logistics warehouse has their own different different nuances and different styles um, for, for example one one company that we're talking with they use a, a crate style delivery structure where, where they load up the crates and then we have to put them into the vehicle uh, and we're working with that company to design a new internal um, uh, structure of the, of the vehicle that will enable them to carry more containers than what they do in the current uh, vehicle that they've they've just bought off the shelf um, in 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 a diesel format. So so we're working with customers and and coming from an operational background myself, it enables me to sort of get into the nitty gritty and understand what the needs are of our customers and and assist them uh, to hopefully not only provide them a, a zero emission transport outcome but but in, in logistics outcome, but also hopefully improve productivity where possible as well. So you can always just go to our website, which is nextport.com.au, or you can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, uh, a few social channels there that we can, you can follow us on. When the machine starts up again, will I be chasing every car? When the machine starts up again, will I continue happening in my heart? When the machine starts up again Will I be spinning all the plates Dancing in the mirrors Clicking all the way When the machine starts Will you remind me I saw the truth once I saw it floating machine starts up again will I be snapping at its wheels drinking down the voices oh and buying books on how to feel when the machine starts up again will I forget what it was like to be standing here looking up drinking in the sky Picking up 
Will you remind me, darling, what it felt like just to stop? That was the wonderful Missy Higgins singing When the Machine Starts. And now, here is Bryce Gayton to tell us about the state of play with electric cars here. Bryce, there were 6,900 battery electric vehicles sold in Australia in 2020, representing 2.7% increase from the 6,718 total in 2019. This is significant as the 2020's electric car sales results account for just 0.7% of the total Australian car sales. What is the current state of play with the number of, not only the number, but the type of EVs in Australia? Uh, well, the number of EVs is very interesting because 6,900 was marginally up on the previous year. But then if you look at the internal combustion engine sales, they plummeted and have actually been going down since 2017. So what's been happening is even though COVID came along, they still managed a very gentle increase. And I've actually just been drawing up a graph for a new article for the Renew magazine. And it's if you look at it, it that last year, 6,900 was actually... A, almost an outlier, and looking at 20,000 as an estimate for this year. So they're going to be up around 2% of the total sales. And if you draw a curve that sort of fits along all of those, it's actually following an exponential line. We're starting to do what the other countries are doing overseas, which is once you start getting to 2%, you really start kicking up more rapid uptake. Overseas, we've been seeing figures like over 20, 23%, I think, in Germany of electric vehicle sales, so that's plug-ins and EVs, of which 10% of new car sales were full battery. So, And that's happening around in a lot of other markets. They're just starting to hit that uptake curve, like fridges, mobile phones, microwaves, all hit that curve and then just start rocketing up exponentially and all new technologies do that. And EVs are doing much the same thing. Just in Australia, we're just a long way further behind in that curve. So does the number of EVs that are available in Australia also reflect this asymptotic rise? Yes, very nicely so. We've got we've gone from, I think, 2017, we had about nine or a bit less than that. It's been increasing in the number, I think, 16 full battery electric vehicles you can buy now on the market. And there's probably another three or four or five maybe by the end of this year. Wow. And what about next year? So we've got uh, coming soon for later this year is the Mazda MX-30. These are all full batteries, by the way. The Volvo XC40, Polestar 2 coming later this year, Ionic 5, although they're pushing that back. It's sounding like maybe December this year. Kia EV6 might be the end of this year as well, so that's five. Next year, uh, so far that I can see that are pretty reliable ones would be the base model Taycan, so it's a, a lower priced, as well as the Taycan Cross um, more SUV-like one. The Genesis G80 will be 2022. EQB Mercedes, probably 2022. Um, and then the ones that you definitely wouldn't know about. And there's others coming that are, may or may not happen, like the BYD and a number of others. Well, the BYD ones will be interesting because they're going to be the cheapest on the market. Mm. Yes, if, if they come through with what they're talking about, they're going to be a real game changer. $35,000, which is mm. pretty amazing. Now, there's several major automotive brands, including the Mini, Jaguar, Volvo and Bentley, that have announced plans to abandon petrol and diesel engines totally in favour of battery electric vehicles. And then there are also some truck manufacturers, including Volvo, DAF, Daimler, Ford, Aveco, Man, and Scania, that have also committed to ending diesel truck sales by 2040. I think also some of these changes have come about because the European Union plans to impose a carbon border adjustment mechanism, or if you like, a carbon tariff on polluting goods from 2026, forcing some companies importing into the European Union to pay carbon costs at the border on carbon intensive products. Mm. Also, the US has a proposal for a carbon tariff starting in 2024, that would apply to about 12% of imports coming into the United States. Given that so many vehicles are manufactured in the European Union and the US, what are the implications of these decisions for what we call ICE vehicles or petrol diesel vehicles? The internal, yeah, ICE or internal, internal combustion. combustion. It's effectively the end of the ICE age, as they colloquially put it. It is partly for green purposes and partly with all of this push for the change of a better technology. People are moving that way, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, but it's being pushed by the governments because of their environmental 
climate change agreements and needing to make transport very low to zero emissions, you've got no option but to go electric. So it, it's a whole lot of pushes all happening, but all pushing in the same direction to push away from fossil fuel burning vehicles moving into electric. So other, other countries are actually forcing Australia into having EVs on the roads. We won't have any option because by 2030, a lot of manufacturers will either be, have stopped or be stopping making internal combustion engine vehicles. And a number of countries will start banning the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles in there. So the EU is now talking of an EU-wide figure of 2035. I know the UK is already talking, or has been starting off at 2035, 2032. I think they're going to announce 2030 at COP26 in Scotland in September. So that was their sort of latest rumour that they're going to announce that as their cut-off date for sale of selling of internal combustion engine vehicles. It's amazing, isn't it, how quickly it's happening. What is happening with the second-hand electric car market here in Australia? It's amazing that how much the prices hold up and it's very hard to buy a second-hand electric car to some degree. The Renault Zoe, for instance, when they all were sold, you almost never see a second-hand one of those pop up on the market. If I were to sell my Kona today, I could sell it for only probably five, dollars $6,000 less than what I paid for it two years ago. That's amazing. And then you could just upgrade to a newer model or a newer vehicle that I could, has all the bells and whistles. Nothing re- For bang for buck, nothing really beats the Kona yet. So there's some interesting ones coming out. Yes, uh, the Ionic 5 looks like a really nice car. The, I, the VW ID3 would be a beautiful car if they bring it if here. They, if they bring it here, which mm. they aren't at the moment. No, they're talking about maybe 2024. The ID4, I believe, will get here earlier, but that's likely to be here no earlier than 2023. Not so long ago, we heard our Prime Minister, the one that brought coal into the Parliament, tell us with great authority that electric utes wouldn't be suitable for tradies <laughs> here in Australia. Are there many electric utes coming into the market? Uh, there's none yet, but right on the, literally coming over the horizon now, um, probably flying over sand dune, uh, is the Rivian ute, and that was to start being delivered this month, although like all new car manufacturers like, like Tesla, they're running on Tesla time, sort of delaying it a few months, so it'll be September this year they're talking before they start making deliveries. And that's a real game changer. It's like the first Tesla Model S. It is a high-end luxury ute, but it's a dual cab ute. Options include a full draw-out kitchen, because there's lots of space without the drivetrain tunnel going right through the car. So between the cab tray or the tub, there's this sort of triangular space where they can actually slide a whole kitchen unit in, including a full cooking system with induction cooktop. Beautiful. I think Robert Llewellyn was saying he's put his name down for one of those. Mm, it's a very, it's going to be a very big car. So I'm not quite sure how he managed to drive it around the small English lanes, but it is a very amazing looking car in terms of specification. Along with that, a little bit later will be a SUV style um, four door station wagon built on the same platform. There's also the F1 Ford F150 Lightning, full electric. It's an amazing vehicle. Talking about releasing that early next year. In large numbers, there's the Hummer has actually been reborn. It's actually going to be an electric vehicle-only brand. So they'll be running all four-wheel drive, big battery. The beauty of these four-wheel drives is you won't hear this sort of diesel chug-chug-chug through the bush anymore. You'll be able to drive along and listen to all the birds or whatever as you're driving along. You don't have to breathe the fumes in. It'll be a totally different experience driving in the bush as well as being able to plug in your coffee coffee percolator in the morning and make yourself a brew <laughs> rather than light the fire. It, it's just, just a very different experience. It's not exactly ruining a long weekend. And the tradies will love it because they'll have 240-volt outlets built into them. So you can charge up your batteries. You don't have to run leads out on a, a big site if you don't have to. You've got full 240-volt capacity to be able to run your tools and do whatever you want. Yes, of so course. They'll be a really big game changer with the, the tradie. They'll be a bonus better vehicle than what they've got now. Much lower running costs. Yes. And there's also, I think, Toyotas are being modified here in Australia as mining vehicles. Yes, GB Auto up in Orange. They actually presented at the AEVA National Conference last year uh, on their conversions, and then they've signed an agreement with Toyota to take Land Cruiser bodies and convert them with a Tembo, it's another overseas company, drivetrain and batteries that GB are putting together. And they're going to be putting them in 78 kilowatt hour batteries. Their early prototypes are about 
20 or 30, I think, just for running around mine sites. But the ones that they'll be doing will be available for sale to the public as well. They're primarily a mining vehicle, but they'll have to be available for sale. So you could buy a fully electric Land Cruiser uh, sometime next year. Excellent. And what about the Ace Ute? The tiny little Ute. Yep, it would be a lovely little car. It's uh, It'll be basically a competitor to the Renault Kangoo. Like all small manufacturers starting up, it's always funding's the issue and it's just research and development takes a lot of time. So it's a very interesting vehicle. It's a full composite body and chassis. So it'll be very light, very maneuverable, a very interesting little vehicle. It's just it's going to take a little while, but it'll be a fun little car. And it'll be built here in Australia, initially from parts imported overseas, and they'll slowly start building more and more of the parts here. Wonderful. And what about EVs that can tow? All EVs can tow. It's just whether the manufacturer could be bothered putting a tow rating on it. <laughs> For instance, the Kia e-Niro, which is effectively a Kona in drag and built on the same platform, has the standard tow rating that all the other Niros have, so about 1,300 kilo brake. And yet the Hyundai Kona, which is pretty much its sibling, has no tow rating for the electric version, but has a 1,300 kilo rating for the petrol version. And and don't tell anybody listening to this, but I bought a kind of petrol tow bar and bolted it to my Kona electric. I don't tow heavily with it, but it is very handy. And all electric vehicles tow better than a petrol car, for instance, because you've got most of your oh, a really good mass amount of torque right from zero. So the tradies will love it with these new utes coming out because they have actually much larger tow capacities than an equivalent diesel or petrol car. And, of course, the Tesla Model X always was able to tow yes. what, over 2,000 kilograms. It's a, it's a classic example of how EVs can actually tow very well. It's just a matter of rating them. Because, for instance, the Model S is exactly on the same platform as the Model X, but it's not rated for towing. It's crazy. Model 3 is rated for uh, just under 1,000 kilos towing, and the Model Y overseas has been rated for towing, so I presume they were rated here as well. The hard part for the Model 3 here is they don't bring in the tow bars, so they, um, or Tesla doesn't fit it as their OEM, which they do overseas. So there are people you can buy them to bring them in, but they're about $1,800. Talking Tesla about Teslas, Tesla always had its own proprietary charging system all over the world. Mm. And now they're talking about opening it up and allowing other EV cars to use their charging stations because they've always been able to use the, the standard charging stations. Yes Do you think no, that's actually going to happen? Yes. Yeah, well, Elon Musk has been the one that said it will. And uh, Tesla didn't want to be different. I suppose that's the way, to, the, the way you look at it. They originally put the uh, roadster together and nobody had a plug design then. So they designed a plug and tried to get the other manufacturers to use it. And they went, no, 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 we don't, we don't want it. So Tesla had their own plug initially. And that's sort of the American plug. But overseas, they've put in what was then the new standard of type 2, which is a three-phase standard. So for 240, 415 volt countries like Australia, all of Europe, and quite a lot of other places, China, that is the standard. And that's pretty much the standard throughout the world, except for those 120 volt countries like the US, Canada, Japan or parts of Japan. And as a result, Tesla went, oh, beauty, we've adopted the same standard as everybody else, except that everybody else then took one look at the Type 2 standard. And yes, it's supposed to be able to do AC or DC, swapping two pins. But no, we don't like that. We'll put two big pins at the bottom, call it Combined Charging System or CCS, which means that the Type 1 plug, which couldn't do that, can use these two big pins. The Type 2 plug has these two big pins at the bottom, so it's bind charging, Type 1 or Type 2 at the top two big pins at the bottom, and Tesla went, we're different again, because they adopted the two-pin approach within the plug DC. So that meant that the Model Xs and Ss had the Type 2 plug, but a special version of it that could do DC as well. Then when the Model 3 came out, Tesla's finally put in the CCS2 socket. So it's now the same as everybody else, which is CCS2 except for Nissan and Mitsubishi, but it's pretty much everybody else uses the CCS2 in Australia. And Therefore, Tesla, all of the Tesla chargers here have the CCS2 plug, uh, as well as the um, the older standard on their superchargers, which meant that anybody could use one if Tesla prepared to open it up. And Tesla originally wouldn't do it because the other manufacturers refused to put money into the network. It sounds like they've come up with a model that you can pay for it. Once Joseph Biden, the president of America, said, let's do it, all of a sudden it looks like it's going to become reality. Mm, finally. Now, electric cars are, are really simple to build in comparison to ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine cars, as the whole drivetrain only has 20 moving parts compared to over 2,000 moving parts in a petrol car. Can you tell us what the maintenance requirements are generally for electric cars? Uh, that's an interesting question because for Teslas, they don't have a service schedule. It's just if something needs to be done, it'll tell you. Otherwise, just keep driving it. My Kona has a service schedule of once a year or 15,000 Ks, whichever comes first. 
And it's effectively a safety check. They just walk around the car, check the tyres, check the suspension, read the data off it, update the maps, do all the usual safety checks that a car has, and off they go again. So for $165 to get a map update and a safety check, I think it's a good deal. Uh, so they don't need a lot as opposed to the internal combustion engine. It needs oil, oil filters, air filters, um, has lots of moving, wearing parts. So they, they wear out. The other detail is who can service an EV? Well, part of it is the electric part needs very little, if any, service. But the other two-thirds, I say it's roughly a two-third, one-third split. One-third is the new part, the drivetrain part, the electric piece, the motor and battery. Two-thirds of it is just a standard car. It has tyres, suspension, brakes, 12-volt electric system with a horn and headlamps. All of those things are exactly the same as a petrol car or a diesel car. So an ordinary mechanic can do all of that stuff, and that stuff is pretty much important to check once a year, make sure everything there is working and safe. And that's great to hear that I can just go and have my brake fluid replaced by a mechanic down the road rather than having to yeah. go to a um, qualified electrical motor mechanic. Mm, which we don't electrical skills which we yes, don't have yes unless they're the ones trained by the manufacturers themselves there is no australian qualification for electric vehicle mechanic although that is about to change as always in australia very slowly we have a, a national training system that accredits training units and has lots of really good consultative processes and they've actually put up a proposed electric vehicle mechanic qualification, so a certificate three trade or apprenticeship system, as well as additional units that can be done by, well, some units can already be done now as electives, but this would have a whole set of core, so a full trade qualification as an EV mechanic. And they'll work on batteries and the battery warranty, I think, in a lot of the cars that are coming out at the moment is generally around the eight year mark. Mm. And I know it's still early days for EVs, so we don't actually know how long batteries are going to last in these cars. But what options are there in terms of battery servicing and updating? Uh, there's, there's, it's an interesting question, that one, because people used to say, oh, when the lease first came out, it's going to cost you know $30,000 plus. That was the quote that was given for a new Leaf battery. But that was when they were under warranty. So if you had a battery that really was declining fast, it would be replaced under warranty. So that was free. And then at the eight-year mark, strangely enough, that $30,000 price suddenly became about $10,000. And that's partly to do with the prices of batteries falling significantly, just like solar cells did. They came down quite massively and battery prices are doing much the same thing. I've just written an article on that and it's, I think it was about 2011 or no, it's around there. It was about $1,600 or thereabouts per kilowatt hour of battery. It's now down to 137. This is US dollars. It's now down to $1,100 it started at. And then it's 137 at the moment. And they say at $100 US per kilowatt hour of battery, it's the price parity point. You can build a petrol car or an internal or an electric car at for the same specifications, same size, whatever. Dollar for dollar, they would be worth the same. And then because sadly, it takes about a third less workforce to build an EV versus a petrol car, um, they will start getting cheaper and cheaper. So past 2024, the first cars that reach that price parity will start going under in price to a petrol equivalent. And those uh, forecasts are by 2020, 28, that they'll have all passed that point. So the first one to cross will be significantly cheaper. And the last ones across it will basically all petrol cars will be more expensive than any battery equivalent. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? So my battery is consists of a whole lot of AAA cells, all stuck together and i would like to think that you could just work out which the faulty um, cells are and replace those rather than replacing the whole battery pack is that going to be possible yes uh it depends on how the battery packs put together i didn't quite answer the first question actually when he was doing that because the reason why it's very hard to quote the battery price at the moment is it is falling almost exponentially in price so the kona batteries are a bit over ten thousand dollars ish i think now to buy one if you look at it in 10 years time and the predictions are uh, the price of batteries per kilowatt hour then they're looking at maybe five five and a half thousand for that pack so that's the manufacturer's side of it on the other side of it there's enough old cars coming around that when they replace start replacing the leaf packs or crashed reliefs in japan where there's enough of them to make it viable they're pulling those packs apart and finding only a couple of cells that are the ones that have brought the whole pack down so they'll pull them all apart test all the cells all the good cells go back into a guaranteed remanufactured pack and you can buy them for 2900 i think it is us dollars about four thousand dollars australian for a 24 kilowatt hour guaranteed reconditioned battery pack to go back into your leaf 
our state governments were working very hard on working out what sort of EV incentives they could introduce. <laughs> I in think you missed, missed a word, a um, prefix called dis, <laughs> disincentives. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that may be the case in, in Victoria and New South Wales, but not the other states. Uh, yeah, even New South Wales is not really a, a disincentive as such. In Victoria, they've put in this interesting EV tax. They have put a $100 million package together. They're going to put a subsidy of about $3,000 towards 20,000 new zero emission vehicle purchases starting May. And they're going to release that in, in tranches. And then they're going to collect, as they have started collecting, 2.5 cents per kilometre for all EVs travelled with a system that is exceedingly difficult to actually get to register. Whereas in New South Wales, at least they've said, yes, they will impose a per kilometre charge, but not before 2027. EVs have got to be at least 2027 or when EVs hit 30% of sales, at which point sales tax will be dropped from EVs. You may or may not like the idea of a per kilometre charge, and there's arguments for it again that those that live in regional areas are going to hurt more than those that live around town. But also, New South Wales is putting $490 million into their package with, with a whole lot of subsidies and EV charging. Again, ours is the same amount of money, starting collecting it now and putting it into things like buying buses, which I'm not quite sure how that's part of a roads tax to buy buses. It certainly sounds like a discombobulated policy, doesn't it? Made up on yes. the run. They're very much on the run when they, you can't even fill in the form and send it in. So Victoria has a few thousand dollars incentive to buy an electric car. New South Wales, and I can't remember how many thousands of dollars. It's about 3,000 again they're putting it through. They're uh, waiving a stamp duty for vehicles under 78,000. And for the first 25,000 private purchases, they're doing uh, a $3,000 rebate. Tasmania's announcing uh, two-year waiving of electric vehicle stamp duties. And Northern Territories doing free registration and reduced stamp duty for five years as of July next year. Oh, good on them. What about South and Australia? I'm not sure. I haven't actually seen anything out of them lately. Wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me if they do, given they're quite supportive of EVs and they've made a few announcements in the past, but nothing recently. Mm. So maybe it's still to come. You're also organising an event this year. Is it called the EV Co Tour? Yeah, I call it the EV Co Tour. The Eco Tour is just a small group of people, so enough people that we can all work together and, and drive around and give each other a bit of support and people will share their stories. And I'll take basically be the, the tour leader and explain, we'll stop at fast charges and explain how they work and just drive around in a nice five-day tour. Caravan parks, by the way, and EVs are a marriage made in heaven. If you charge pretty much any EV via a caravan park outlet, you, you drive in, you know, third or quarter charge in the evening, you can drive out 100% charge the next day, no hassle. It's a matter of there are lots of options for charging away from home, but a lot of people with their new EVs are very nervous. In September 2019, I drove around Victoria. It was basically when Scott Morrison had said earlier in the year, you know, EVs will ruin the long weekend. I said, challenge accepted. I'll drive around Victoria, did 2,400, seven days, 7,400 kilometres, seven days, without any DC fast charging. It was a perfectly comfortable trip. So if yeah, anybody's like- interested with a new EV um, and would like to join us, um, plug for my website, evchoice.com.au, and just click on the link for the EVco tour. evchoice.com.au. Uh, so yes. when's the tour actually happening? Uh, planning it for mid-November, COVID willing. It's trying it to sounds like there'll demand. be a lot of good tips that'll be picked up along the way. Mm. And that's a good note to finish up on. Yes. Well, thank you for the opportunity again. And that is our show for today. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Luke Todd from True Green Mobility. If you'd like to find out more about True Green Mobility, check out their website and socials. Thanks also to Bryce Gayton. More information on the electric car specifications can be found on the AEVA, Australian Electric Vehicle Association, website. You can see from our guests' comments that the electric vehicle space is changing rapidly here in Australia, whether it be cars, vans, trucks, bikes, boats or skateboards. My hope is that we start thinking about creating the transition sustainably and don't just replace petrol vehicles with electric vehicles. Do we still need to own our vehicles or should we develop share systems and more efficient public transport networks instead? Do we need to have so many trucks on the roads or should a more efficient train network be created? Do we look at drones for parcel deliveries rather than trucks or vans? 
Hopefully our local and state governments are looking at the bigger picture and beginning to develop a better plan for all of us. My name is Kay Winningall and I hope you can join me in a month's time for another program. This is part of the Community Action Radio Show. It's aired on 3CR Melbourne, thanks to Michaela, and on Skid Row in New South Wales, thanks to Saul. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.